I will work day in and day out to wake up and smell the coffee. We want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Wes Kasmar, the author of Quiet Enjoyment, uh, one of the founders of Delphi, and someone who has spent a lot of time thinking about the internet and the ways that it has changed over the past few decades. Welcome to the podcast, Wes. Great to be here, Will. It's fantastic to have you on. Now, the first question I'd like to ask is, do you think you could tell us how Delphi started? What was the genesis behind it? In 1981, I launched the world's first online encyclopedia. And as a business, that pretty much hit the wall. It was not a viable business model. So very fortunately, we realized that early enough and for one thing, stopped supplying the computer that uh, was a, included an Apple II or a Tandy color computer with your subscription. And we saw ourselves as competitors to uh, Encyclopedia Britannica at about the same price. And the cost of the product was more than we were charging when you factored in all the support that people were expecting. You know, basically people were buying it for their kids because all the computer education courses were filled up and they saw this as a way to uh, to get on the phone with us all day long and learn about computers. But fortunately, we said, okay, enough of that. But we had started adding social features to the encyclopedia, bulletin boards and chats and email, which was quite new at the time. And uh, that saved our bacon. It actually turned viable fairly quickly after we did that. So and by 1982, we had a sustainable business. And we, along with two others, constituted the whole social media world. I should say we, along with two others, which were CompuServe and Reader's Digest, were the social media world. But there were also bulletin boards running on personal computers at the time. And some of those were linked, so they were global in nature. Basically, it was social media in 1982. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I also mentioned at the beginning wasn't obviously um, just Delphi, but Quiet Enjoyment, which is the, the book that you wrote about 20 years ago now. Could you just explain what Quiet Enjoyment is about, what the kind of general ideas behind it are? Sure. You know, in 1982, through the, through the 80s, social media had accountability, accountable anonymity, I should say. So you could assert your identity through your username without disclosing your identity. And so we had accountability. We had no data mining going on. We weren't selling access to your, not just purchasing habits, but the whole relationships thing that is so much a part of social media data mining these days. So we sold Delphi in 1993 to Rupert Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch's News America Corporation, retained a license to some of the technology and built a second business that we sold to NTT Vario in 1998. And that left me with time on my hands to think about how do we bring accountability and more particularly accountable anonymity back to social media? Because web-based social media with no accountability had turned into uh, quite a zoo, which it still is. And that's what the book's about. So I was looking at a number of alternatives, and my daughter 
said, hey, you know, accountability online, isn't that what PKI is about? Isn't that your answer? And I said, yeah, Sarah, it looks good on paper. It's one of those things that looks good on paper, but in practice, it's very hard to deploy. And I went away from that conversation, but it, it kind of nagged at me, you know, why is it so hard to deploy? And as I thought about it, I said, it's, it's not really, it's the set of assumptions that were behind it that made it appear to be difficult to deploy. You know, for instance, a heart of a PKI is a certification authority. Well, okay, who's a certification authority? That is, who attests to the contents of a certificate? Who says you can count on what's in the certificate? And the answer was, because PKI and the underlying asymmetric cryptography was developed by technologists, their answer to that question was, anyone who understands how to run a CA server must be an authority, right? Well, so now we had a proliferation of certification authorities, quote, selling certificates, and they still sell certificates. Okay, step back and think. Imagine if, if a vital records department was a commercial enterprise that sold birth certificates. Who would you like to be today? For $200, we'll let you be uh, Winston Churchill. Or would you like to be a building inspector? Would you like to be an architect? $250 will get you an architect's professional license. That's what we have still. We have 12 reasons why PKI was not deployed in a way that made it viable. And when I say PKI, I mean public PKI. Within companies, there's a lot of PKI. They run their own certification authorities. They take on immense loads of responsibility and difficulty, frankly. It's like a, it's as though a company that needs uh, corporate travel decides to build their own airplane. That's how PKI is done in companies. That example of a CA begs the question, what is an authority? Is it a company that can be bought and sold? We were actually investors in a commercial certification authority that had developed a reputation for integrity. Then when they put themselves up for sale, well, okay, what happens when a company with a strong particular asset puts itself up for sale? In this case, an integrity asset. A company with a strong asset, when it puts itself up for sale, attracts buyers that lack that asset, right? And that is exactly what happened. Google very quickly discovered that this company was issuing fraudulent certificates. This company that had been known for integrity is now issuing fraudulent certificates. So all of a sudden, Google and all of the browser makers pulled the root certificate from their browsers for this company. I, I might as well tell you the name of it. It's Startcom. And everyone who had bought a certificate, a site certificate, or any kind of certificate, a code signing certificate, anything, all of a sudden, those certificates, if you went to a customer's website, you got this nasty, frightening message, don't trust this site. You know, the certificate is bad. I mean, we're talking about probably a couple of hundred thousand companies and people who had bought those certificates in good faith, and now all of a sudden, they don't work. So... That's what I started writing a book about. I started writing a book about how to do PKI, public PKI, in a way that provides the kind of accountability that the fundamental technology promises. Mm -hmm. As I'm writing the book, 
some people at the ITU, the UN agency, the International Telecommunication Union, learned that I was doing that and got in touch with me. And, and it turns out they were building a world PKI that resembled what I was advocating. So I joined them in the World E-Trust Initiative. Alex Natoko and Hamadoun Touré were the people behind that. And all was going swimmingly until we announced it to the member states of the ITU, of which there are about 180, and they're pretty much the same as the member states of the United Nations, of, of which it is part. And the reaction was, wait, this looks like Internet squared. We already thought, oh my goodness, the Internet is a threat to our sovereignty. This looks like a double-down threat to our sovereignty. And practically unanimously, the reaction was, get this thing out of here. Pull the plug on it now. And so Alex Natoko and Hamadoun Touré took me aside and said, Wes, we don't want to see this die. Can you take it? And I said, yeah, if we can turn it into a, an online municipality, if we make these changes to it, then, then sure. So on March 7, 2005, the city of Osmio was chartered at ITU headquarters in Geneva to serve as a certification authority to the world. Now, the important thing to know, because in this age of decentralization, the important thing to know about Osmio is that it's like a city. It is, is the word participatorily, uh, is that a word? Yeah, it's participatorily yeah. governed. Anyone can participate in the governance of Osmio. And that's I'm a big fan of decentralization, but there is a decentralization advocate named Lawrence Lundy Bryan, who is famous, at least in our team, for having said and published the words, there is no such thing as decentralized governance. So Ethereum is a governed blockchain. All of them but Bitcoin. Basically, Bitcoin is, is a remarkable system with strong accountability, except that you don't know who the counterparties are. So in that way, it's a gift to criminals. But that's how we ended up building a PKI foundation that's sustainable. Hmm. So long-winded answer to your question. No, but a very detailed and a very comprehensive one. Thank you. I, I think one of the things that I find interesting about your work is that it raises the question, as you say, about accountability. And I mean, how much do you think that it raises the question of accountability of the individual user versus accountability of governments within uh, the, the um, area that the particular user lives? And what do you think the interaction is between that kind of like accountability? And, and do you think that it should be extended in one way or the other, the government should be uh, held more accountable or the individual user living within the area governed by that particular government should be held more accountable. Okay, big, big, big caveat mm. in answering your question. I believe that governments defined by geography are obsolescent. The answer is no, I don't think governments can. Beckett's know nothing about geographic boundaries. Here in Massachusetts, we have county government but nobody knows what it does. I'm not kidding. They take a little bit off the top of our state income tax and pay the, the counties. I think it's state. Maybe it's local property taxes. Maybe that. I, who knows? Nobody seems to know. <laughs> I grew up in a town in Norfolk County, Massachusetts. 
It runs an agricultural school, Norfolk Aggie, we used to call it. Now, I wonder if there are more than half a dozen farms left in this Boston suburb, Norfolk County. Anyway, long-winded answer again to the irrelevance of geographically defined governments. We're going to have, and we are having, global communities of interest. Facebook is the largest nation on earth. I can identify another very large nation. We call it Silabandia. That's Silicon Valley plus the broadband and media industries. And you might throw in the dark web fraudsters in that category. They have a very big community, a very prosperous community, stealing our personal information and selling it. And when I say personal information, it's, you know, people think it's, oh, my buying habits. No, it's not mostly your buying habits. It's your relationships. It's your beliefs. It's your propensity to join an echo chamber political group that can be sold miracle cures and and uh, get rich quick schemes you know those are your information about you that commands the highest price russia loves to buy data mined information because they have an agenda of their own what mm. watch watch your uh watch your windows as you publish this that may be so yeah i don't think governments can possibly any geographically defined government is is what's the expression whistling in the wind when they think yeah. that they're going to have an impact on you know the kind of global communities and that we are we have in yeah. the the information age mm. and how much do you think then um you obviously mentioned uh, the UN earlier how much do you think international agencies can impact the way in which the internet is used, the way in which people engage with the internet, do you think that countries working together cross-borders have any more uh, efficiency or effectiveness? And do you think that the issue with that is is that there will be countries within that coalition who don't want to do anything, who don't want to help in any way to make the internet a bit more uh, accountable to itself? Let's parse that word, international. International. <laughs> How does that differ from global? How does the United Nations differ from the United People? Oh, wait, there isn't a United People, is there? Maybe there should be. So um, I have this address. May I mention it? Yes, of course. Um, Stoanova.org. S-T-O-A-N-O-V-A dot org. You may recognize uh, Stoic Stoicism. And so that's that's a big part of the value system that is part of Stolenova. And so it, it's a joining kind of thing. I often cite Bertrand Russell in noting that thinkers tend not to be joiners. So we want to try to do something about that because non-thinkers certainly have shown us that they love to join. They just bring that bandwagon around. I'm I'm on board. But we need thinkers. We need thinkers. We need thinkers to act together to fix things. And I view my my mission, my calling, my assignment to be uh, fixing things, uh, repair work, uh, a repair shop. And I think that uh, that's, that's one thing that we have to figure out a fix for, and that is the tendency of, of thinkers to, to uh, you know, there are too many, too many issues, too many issues, uh, too much entropy in this world to coalesce it all into a coherent 
plan of action, but yeah, we're going to stop thinking that way and, and, and decide on some things that are, that we can get on with. And by that, I do not mean political left versus right conservative liberal. That's an artifact, a meaningless artifact. Who sold us that? I can't figure. Somebody, somebody pitched us this notion that everything is on a spectrum from right to left. You know, it's to me, it's like this is an Americanism, but I compare it to uh, Red Sox versus Yankees. <laughs> it's that meaningful, which is meaningful to me, being a Bostonian. <laughs> Red Sox versus Yankees is very meaningful, but. In the grand scheme of things, it is quite meaningless. Maybe I should say uh, Manchester United versus uh, uh, Liverpool. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably a, uh, an apt comparison. Um, in, t- in terms of then being able to talk to politicians and being able to convince them, um, you know, maybe to, to change their ways and to not think in terms of a kind of like binary between liberal conservative Republican, Democrat, that kind of thing, in, specifically in terms of looking at the the internet. Do you think that that's possible at all, or do you think that the kind of like the the barriers, the binary barriers, are too ingrained that it makes it almost impossible to convince them of doing something just for the sake of it being a, a positive thing and it not being a, a party political thing? Yeah, impossible. <laughs> what going to work? No, I'm quite serious. You know, they they. I, I liken it to our experience with traditional media. You know, Delphi was kind of inadvertently built on the backs of uh, magazine publishers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can go into that story, but I won't go into the detail for another time. But much as we tried to say, you have the audience relationships, you have the advertiser relationships, we're like your printer. You know, the printer of a magazine is the supplier of the technology, but not the subscription arrangements or the nothing but you tell us what to put on paper. Mm-hmm. Same way with us as we try to sell private label social, their own basically social media products, their own social mm-hmm. network. Boy, they were just, we, we were the adversary. I have some <laughs> amazing stories about that, but. Same with politics, you know. Like I said, the, the thing is, they—I think they, somewhere under the skin, recognize that we're making geographic boundaries obsolete, and their whole shtick is all about geographic boundaries. You know, this is what we. This is this is the here here are the laws here are the customs within this piece of turf, and we're coming along saying ah, a piece of turf doesn't mean anything anymore. In terms of artificial intelligence. It's something that the media have particularly in, in, in the last few years become kind of obsessed about and talk about in um, one way or the other. Do you think that the possibilities that are afforded by what they refer to rather bluntly as AI, but also the constraints of it are fully understood both by the, the media and by the public at large? They are not understood, um, and I would like to help them with that problem. The problem is that people are concerned about AI developing its own agenda. What do we do? Again, everything we do is inspired by solutions to problems in the physical world. One of those problems that has been solved a long time ago is, what do you do about an individual who can't be trusted with their own choices? 
for whatever reason. You know, we have this famous case with, uh, with um, am I going to get this right? I better. Britney Spears? Oh, do you mean with the, the, the AI images recently, um, Taylor Swift? No, no, no. Oh, I mean, so what do we do in the in the physical world? Oh, oh, the conservative. Uh, conservative. Yeah, 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 British, yeah, yeah, yeah. Britney Spears, I, yeah. I got it right. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sometimes mix up my celebrities. But yeah, suppose we had any AI that's capable of presenting itself and interacting as a person needs a conservative a professionally licensed conservator. Now, professional licensing is a big part of what we're advocating, a big part of the way to make PKI-based accountability work in the digital world. If you were to have a building, hire an architect and a contractor, and, and a building is built and inspected and everything is according to code, but you stiffed your architect you didn't pay your architect, that building would not be habitable. The architect and the contractor and the building inspector all must sign off on the issuance of the occupancy permit. You can't have people in that building without an occupancy permit. This is one reason why architects, successful architects make a lot of money. It's not the time they put into producing those drawings, although that can be considerable. It's the fact that they accept liability. Their signature on that occupancy permit says, I, the architect, certify that the building is habitable. And guess what? If the building develops cracks or turns out that there are hidden passageways that don't show up on the drawings, I can lose my livelihood. I can lose my very generous livelihood. Because that's what professional liability means. And we need it so badly in the digital world. So the city of Osmio, if you go to osmio.ch, you'll see professional licensing, a professional licensing menu item. There are 26 professional licenses listed. The last one of them is the AI conservative professional license, meaning this is a human being, an individual who puts their good name and their livelihood and their reputation on the line for accepting that this AI, this particular AI, is not going to do bad things to people. There's your answer. And, I mean, do you think that this will be an idea that will be widely embraced? Or do you think that it might take you a bit of, uh, a bit of convincing for, for those who are... Let's put it this way. As long as geographically-based jurisdictions are healthy and lively and don't hit the wall... Then no, it's going to be very, it's going to be a very difficult road to hoe. On the other hand, that's a big assumption. The assumption that geographically based governments uh, and jurisdictions are going to continue to thrive and collect taxes and uh, make laws. Yeah, I think that's pretty iffy. So the answer is, yeah, I think it's, I think it's going to get traction. I absolutely, you know, 10 years ago, I was a member of a, the Friday morning men's discussion group. And when we did talk about what we did for a living, you know, talk about security and, and um, the consensus was, well, because there are two different ways to view security. One is catch the bad guy's security. And the other is accountability-based environments, ABE, CTBG and, and ABE. And their view was, as long as they keep working at it, they'll flush these problems out. They'll figure out how to keep the bad guys out. I said, you know, the bad guys have the advantage in that 
set of assumptions. You can work really hard to find a way to filter the bad guys out. And all they have to do is tweak a little bit of what they're doing and yeah, run what you're doing. Whereas accountability-based security, it's quite the opposite. All you do is make sure that you have reliable information that the per- who's accountable for what is going on. And they have to jump through all sorts of hoops to appear to be someone else and actually let that identity through. Anyway, those guys are on board with me now. It took 10 years, but they're, they're starting to say, oh, yeah, okay. That, what were you saying? You're all accountability back then? I, yeah, okay, let me tell you one more time. Yeah, accountability-based security environments, ABE, and individuals. Individuals joining global communities. A global community has a sanction that physical communities do not have. If I move to your city, yeah, okay, the quality of government has something to do with it, but generally it's, you know, do I have have work there? Do I have the kind of residence I want, neighbors, etc.? It takes an awful lot for a geography to kick you out, right? I mean, that's just not a sanction available to them. But an online community, if the consensus is, if due process says, we don't want you around anymore, it's easily done. Hmm. Taken off the access control list and have fun wherever you choose to hang out, but you're not going to hang out here. Yeah. And of course, that depends on a measurably reliable identity that can't, you know, they can't just create a new identity and, and, you know, come in that way. But the trolls, you know, yeah. we have a magnificent anti-trolling platform. So, Indeed. Um, well, coming towards the end of the podcast, Wes, um, it's been great to speak to you. And I'd just like to ask if you um, have anything that you would like people to, to check out who have um, been listening to the podcast, whether it be your books, the various websites that you've mentioned, what would you most like them to, to check out as kind of like a, as a starting block uh, for coming, uh, becoming more aware of uh, KPI and more aware of accountability and the work you've been doing? Well, I've mentioned osmio.ch, which is the uh, certification authority and municipality that backs up claims with PKI certificates, identity certificates, and the things that are built on them, such as professional licenses. And I mentioned stoanova.org, S-T-O-A-N-O-V-A.org. I would also mention a continent, a new continent, where things work the way we've been describing, where there's accountable anonymity. You can assert your identity without disclosing your identity. Authentiverse.net will take you on a flight to tell you about this new continent where things work this way. So, and oh, in the book, Quiet Enjoyment, I'm, we never really marketed the book, but I'm working on the third edition now, and we will be promoting that. We do not direct users to Amazon to purchase our books because they're part of Sylvania. And oh, fascinating, they will tell authors and publishers, oh, we can't give you the name of the buyer of your book. There are privacy issues there. Oh, so you don't use that information yourself. Is that what you're implying? So I, as the author, there is someone who bought my book because they're interested in the subject matter, but I can't know who that is. But you can, because you're going to put that reader's information on your balance sheet as a money-making asset. All right. Anyway. Well, uh, 
thank you very much, uh, Wes. I'm, I'm sure people will certainly avoid buying the book on Amazon, but I would certainly encourage them uh, to buy the book. Uh, it's a fascinating uh, work and to visit the other uh, links that you've mentioned. Thank you once again for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you, Will. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.